What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Talking Chop Podcast. This is episode 10. We have hit double digits. I am Carlos Palazzo, along with Brad Rowland, as always. Brad, how's it going? I'm good, man. Double digits. It feels so good. Um, almost like when the Braves win some games for once. So it's, it's good that we're in double digits and it's good that they're actually winning. And it's uh, fun to talk some Braves as always. Yeah, it's exciting when the Braves are winning, but it's even more exciting when we have our very own Scott Coleman on the podcast as we do today. <laughs> Scott, what's going on out there in Arizona? Uh, it's, it's hot. Um, but, you know, so are the Braves. Hottest team in baseball right now. Just joking around that uh, they are the hottest team in baseball along with the Minnesota Twins. So let's rematch 91's World Series and see what happens. Yeah, the greatest comeback after starting 0-9, both of those teams. Um, last week, it seemed like the Braves would never win again. And now they might never lose again after sweeping the Miami Marlins. Uh, but before we talk about the Braves, we've got some more serious Stuff to get into. Obviously, you guys have probably heard about the Hector Oliveira situation. Last week, uh, the morning of April 13th, he was charged with one misdemeanor count of assault and battery for allegedly striking a female victim at the team's hotel. Uh, he posted a $10,000 bail and is currently on administrative league while Major League Baseball investigates the incident. Um, according to its new domestic violence policy that was recently put into place they can put him on administrative leave for up to seven days while they investigate and uh, before they make a decision uh, we're not going to talk too much about this just because not a lot has changed and we've kind of covered everything that's been going down on the site so if you need to get updated on this situation uh, in detail please check out talking chop we've got a story stream up there for you you can get all the details but brad what do you think about this situation obviously not good news for the team and even more importantly not good news for this just this incident on a personal level yeah, it's brutal. I mean, obviously the reaction was not uh, not good uh, for Hector Oliveira, and it shouldn't be. If this is true, we, should, we have to say that. If this is true, then this is just a, a terrible look for the human being of Hector Oliveira. Um, baseball aside, like I was kind of, it was kind of weird to even think about talking about baseball uh, on that day that it broke, just because obviously some fans, your reaction is to you know think about your team, um, but at the same time. Uh, this is kind of a brutal, um, just a personal act, if it's true. Um, so hopefully it's not. But, uh, you know, innocent until, innocent until proven guilty. But as you mentioned, he's uh, currently not with the team. And uh, if this ends up being uh, something that actually took place, there's going to be some far-reaching implications. I mean, it could end up with him being off the team. could end up with him being having a lengthy suspension. Um, it wouldn't be fun to root for a guy that did this, frankly. Um, as a Braves fan and as somebody who has to cover the team all the time like we do. Um, again, if it's true, we don't, we don't know if it is, but uh, you know, it's not a lot of fun to talk about, not a lot of fun to think about, and that's kind of where we are now in sort of a holding pattern as we kind of figure out and let the uh, legal process do what it does. Yeah, Scott, what do you have to, to say about this situation? I think that just it's, it's a bad look for all parties involved. And, of course, as Brad and, and you both mentioned, we do need to see kind of the legalities and where everything goes with it. But if it's true, I don't really see how the Braves keep him around, especially considering recent events um, across not only baseball but all the professional sports. Um, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's a decision that the front office is going to make, and I would hope that they will certainly do their due diligence with the police departments that are investigating um, but yeah, just a horrible situation all around. And of course, this is an off-field incident, but I believe it happened when when Atlanta was 0-7. Uh, so you know, if if things hadn't hit rock bottom at that point, then you have a, a player go and do something as stupid as as uh, allegedly hit a woman. So 
Um, it, it's certainly a bad situation, and, and we'll see what the league, how the league handles it, and then of course uh, if they take action, if Atlanta takes further action as uh, to discipline him. Yep. So we'll have to keep monitoring this situation as it unfolds, uh, both within the baseball sphere and within the legal sphere. Um, so I think we can just move on from that and talk about more baseball-related things, as I'm sure you guys probably want to hear us talk about. Um, one quick note before we jump into the sweep of Miami. Gordon Beckham left Saturday's game against the Marlins with a left hamstring strain, is what the team called it, and they are waiting until Tuesday to make a... DL decision, according to Mark Bowman of MLD, MLB.com, um, given the off day Monday, that gives him some time to kind of see what treatment can do to see if he needs to go on the DL. Um, obviously, it'll be better for the team if he is able to avoid a DL stint, but you never know with those hamstring injuries, and that just adds to the list of recent Braves injuries to start the season. Um, Scott, do you want to say anything about Gordon Beckham, or uh, is this kind of just a minor thing? But we'll see what they do if it is disabled list. Um, of course, Beckham wasn't getting a huge number of at-bats, but uh, he was kind of the uh, – everyone kind of mocked the Braves for taking him just because he has been really bad the last couple of years. But if you look at his numbers, he's actually one of the better hitters so far on the team, which isn't saying a whole lot. Um, but, you know, he's a veteran guy. He can fill in a couple places on the infield. Uh, you hope he can avoid the DL, but again, if if he's out for two weeks, it's not like we're gonna. Uh, his it wouldn't be like losing uh, even a Freeman or or a uh, hell. I can't even think of a good player to name to get hurt. So I'll hope for his sake he's not hurt. But either way, it's not really gonna change too much. All right, sounds good. But let's jump into the series against Miami. Um, obviously, very exciting for Freddie Gonzalez to go in and sweep his former team. I know talking to him last summer when I was actually covering the team in person, uh, Freddie was always happy to beat the Marlins. Um, and especially at this point in the season when everyone's kind of questioning him as a manager, questioning the decisions that he's making while managing a defeated team. Very nice uh, to get the three games in Miami. Nick Marcakis continued to just be a torrid hitter at the plate. He had five hits, scored in every game. Uh, and is currently leading Major League Baseball with nine doubles. And I think the big thing for me was Freddie Freeman getting a hit in every game during this series. He had two in the finale today. Uh, but Brad, what are your thoughts on this series as a whole? Is there anything that jumps out to you, or is this kind of just a nice moment for, for the team and for the fans who've been waiting for some sort of victory? Yeah, the Freddie the Freddy Gonzalez revenge tour continues. Um, <laughs> obviously, he has sort of a personal gripe with the Marlins, and honestly, I think he sure, he's sort of... Uh, uh, could defend that gripe. Uh, um, he probably shouldn't have been fired as fast as he was in Miami. So you can see uh, why he would be a little bit extra motivated. But um, it's just fun to see the team win. I mean, obviously, this is going to be a season probably marred by more losses than wins. Um, and But after you start 0-9, just you know, picking up one is nice, but sweeping a series on the road, no less, uh, was pretty surprising. Um, I kind of agree with you that Freeman coming alive is an encouraging um, development. Obviously, you want him to be good. Uh, he's your one um, proven uh, middle-of-the-order bat um, in the organization right now. Um, we, and we could talk about Marquez, which you already brought up. He's sort of the, 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 the uh, clear number two guy. But if Freeman doesn't hit, it's going to be a long, long year. Mm -hmm. um, it might be anyway. But Freeman is sort of that guy that you uh, at least want to bank on to be good. Um, so it, it was good to see him come alive. And Marquez is killing the ball, man. We've kind of crapped on Marquez a lot in this Not space. Me. At least I, look, Never me. That's true. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take. I'll take it. it it's on. It's on me. Um, he looks good. He looks healthy. Um, 
we have we have to at least mention that he, that he has that he has no home runs, so it's not like he's you know suddenly regained the twenty home run power that he used to have. But um, he is a doubles hitter at this point, and if he's going to go out and hit you know thirty five forty doubles, that's good. I mean, you can if you can go through a whole season with hitting four home runs, but and still be productive, which we which he actually kind of displayed last year. But nine doubles already. There's um, power is not only confined to home runs. Um, and doubles matter, and singles matter, and all that stuff. So it's good to see him still continuing that hot start, even if it's probably a little bit fluky in terms of what he's actually done to this point. But I think he's a good player. I think he's a good hitter. Um, so that's good. I mean, you want somebody to be consistent. And uh, Scott kind of mentioned earlier that Gordon Beckham has been one of the better hitters on the team. <laughs> it's a very low bar. Um, it's true about Beckham. But uh, Marquez is the one guy who's actually been like – flat out good with no caveat like anywhere any team he's been a good hitter this year which it's, it's nice to have one I guess yeah and uh, right now Marquez is hitting 333 with a 423 on base percentage and a 533 slugging percentage I don't think those numbers nor do I think either of you think those numbers are going to stay where they are um, he's got a 200 isolated power right now which is kind of funny to look at considering, power considering that last year he had three homers and 38 doubles He's already got nine doubles this season, as we've mentioned. Um, and if you look at his BABIP, this is kind of interesting. I'm just looking at his Fangraphs page right now. He's got a 385 batting average on balls in play right now. And obviously that's really high. I don't think that's sustainable for him. But if you look at his career BABIP, he's got a 318 uh, mark on balls in play, which is pretty high for a guy who you don't look, uh, look at as, a, as kind of a speedster who can maybe turn some hits that otherwise wouldn't be hits into hits. Um so he definitely is a good hitter. We've we've we saw that last year, even with the lack of power. Um, and I don't know; it's just encouraging. I like seeing him hit well, considering that I've always been more on his side than Brad has, as is really fun now with with him kind of showing it these two weeks. But Scott, what do you think of Nick Markakis? Is he uh, is he going to be the best hitter on the team all season long? You know, he certainly could be. He says that he feels better. He feels that he feels that he's regained his strength before the next surgery. And of course, anyone who has routinely lifted weights, as of course Marcakis has done for many, many years, you know, if you take a six months off like he had to do uh, two off seasons ago as he had the surgery, you would immediately feel the results when you go out and try to do anything, let alone play 162 baseball games. So it's certainly encouraging. Again, Everything we say today could probably be followed up with it's only two weeks, mm-hmm. um, but it's about as strongly as you can have for two weeks, considering his kind of his bat profile and, and who he is now. Um, as Brad said, he's certainly not going to be a, a home run slugger, uh, but if he can still club out 40, 45 doubles and play serviceable defense in right field, I think the Braves, uh, considering some of the off-field stuff that, that he brings as well, would, would, happily, take, would happily take that from Marquecas. Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely true. Um, but moving on to Freeman, uh, he's only hit 167 so far this season. Obviously, as you just said, Scott, it's only two weeks. I don't think we need to freak out about that. And one of the kind of things that, that keeps you positive about Freeman is that he's still got a 348 on base percentage. His walk rate is still right up there uh, where it's been throughout his whole career. It's actually 17.4% right now, which is significantly above his, his career mark. So not saying that these numbers are going to stick, but it's nice to see him taking the walks and getting on base while he kind of figures out the swing during the first few weeks of the season. I know he said he feels perfectly healthy, so there's nothing really concerning with that. I feel like it's more of just him kind of going through a little mini slump at the start of the season before he takes off like we know he's going to. Is that is that the case for you, Brad? I, that's what I feel like it is with Freddie. 
Yeah, I mean, the injury stuff is, is going to be a concern until he proves for a long period of time that he's going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, the walk rate is nice. I think we, we probably should mention that part of the walk rate, I think, with Freeman is going is to be that he's going to get pitched around all year. Yeah. Um, so, he, I mean, he, his play discipline is good and it's always been good. But I think it might be a little bit uh, artificially inflated this year just because, you know, teams are really not worried about anybody that's batting around him in the lineup. Um, it's that simple sometimes. I, I think the concept of lineup protection is greatly overrated. But at the same time, if Freeman's the one guy in the middle of the lineup that the teams are scared of, they have no incentive to pitch to him, uh, in a, in, at least in a high-pressure situation. So his, his walk rate's going to be high. Whether he kind of uh, owns that or not, um, it's going to be uh, probably you know, not, a, not a ton, not, not double what it normally would be, but maybe two or three percentage points higher than uh, it should be. And you know, he gets credit for that. You have to take the walks. Mm-hmm. It's better than swinging at stuff that he shouldn't be swinging at. So that's encouraging. But it's just something to note that he's, it's, the walk rate's going to be there um, partially because of the rest of the lineup. Yeah, it would, be, it would be interesting to talk to him about this and ask whether or not his early struggles are because teams are pitching around him more. Because you would think in spring training – there's really no incentive to pitch around him because, I mean, the games don't mean anything, so you're just going to work him like you would any other batter. But it would be interesting to see how he's noticed pitchers uh, giving him less to hit, and I guess maybe maybe Freddie was just reaching at some pitches he otherwise wouldn't have because he's just not getting those pitches. I, it would be curious to talk to him and see like if he has noticed uh, pitchers just really not giving him anything at this point because it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, you look at the lineup that he's in, but he had to deal with that last season as well. Um, so if he's healthy, I would imagine that he can remain productive. I mean, him not having him having Adonis Garcia hitting behind him shouldn't turn him into a, a terrible hitter. I don't think that is how baseball works. But um, any other thoughts on on Freddie's struggles or what you saw of him this weekend, Scott? Or we can can we move on from that? Yeah, I, I think that Freddie will be fine. It's just getting comfortable and you know getting out to beat the same drum, but. Two weeks. Everybody yeah. has bad two weeks. Um, if he has this line in a month, then I think there's certainly reason to be concerned. Is he is he hiding an injury? Uh, is he not seeing the ball? He of course had the eye issues a couple of years back, which seemed to be resolved. But um, you know, hopefully this weekend he takes a couple of hits and a couple of walks and turns it into something. You know what he's done the last four or five seasons. All right. So we touched on this briefly, but Freddie Gonzalez has been. A topic of much debate over the first few weeks, unsurprisingly, um, particularly with his bullpen management. Management, I feel like. Uh, what do you guys think about Freddie's bullpen management? Do you think that he's been uh, too harshly criticized because of his team's performance, or do you think it's about in line with what you'd expect given the Braves' situation so far this year? Scott, you want to kick us off with this? <sighs> yeah, I, I love mean, the sigh. You, you with, know, something good is happening. When, when it's you perfect with the sigh. <laughs> At this point, Freddie is Freddie. Um, just not being able to use Vizzy today because he used him in a blowout Thursday game and didn't bring him in when he should have brought him in to face Harper. Instead, he brought in O'Flaherty, who gave up a, a homer, I think it was. Um, you know, it's it's Freddie being Freddie. I think the bullpen has actually performed pretty well, especially considering they've had some limitations, both of guys getting injured and also guys like Grilly and Johnson 
recovering from from injury and, and kind of still getting in in the swing of things. But uh, you give it a day or two, and Freddie will make a bad decision. You know, not bring in a lefty, uh, pull his pitcher like he did with Chassin a week ago, and and just take him out. You know, like in the mid seventy pitch count. And then of course the eighth inning goes around, and they go, oh boy, they sure have used a lot of relievers. Well, because <laughs> you took your pitcher out with seventy pitches, so. Um, I, I think it's just kind of the norm with Freddie. I I don't think it's any surprise people know. I, w- I would like to see him gone at least before next season. Um, but if he wants to keep screwing things up this season, uh, at least for a little while longer, I, I don't have too much of an issue with it just because uh, this team is probably going to lose more than they win, regardless of if it was Freddie Gonzalez managing, if it was Joe Madden managing, if it was Bobby Cox managing. Yeah, Brad, I know you got to write a fun little piece about uh... – Freddie being projected as the most likely manager to be fired was that the case? You want to talk a little bit about what you what you saw with that and what you think on this whole situation? Yeah, some of the online bookmakers uh, put up a uh, a uh, prop concerning the first MLB manager to be fired, and Freddie was a significant favorite <laughs> um, at the time. To be fair, I think the Braves were one and nine, and now they're three and nine. So maybe that's gone down a little bit, um, maybe by stopping the bleeding, but. You know, Freddie's bullpen management has never been good, uh, even when the team was winning. Uh, we all think about David Carpenter and uh, Craig Kimbrell and all those things. Um, but Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to bring it up. Um, but, no, Freddie, Freddie is Freddie, I think, is a great way to put it by Scott. Um, some, it, will, it, would help, it would help him a lot if the veterans were good, um, just because you know he's going to pitch them. You know he's going to pitch Jim, Jim Johnson and Jason Gurley in high-leverage situations. Um, just because that's that's what's going to happen. Those are your those are your name relievers, um, who the organization also probably wants to trade. Um, so you have to try to give those guys a little bit of extra leash to see if them succeed. I, Johnson was actually quite good uh, today. Um, I think uh, just to jump in, I think Jim Johnson has gone three straight eighth innings. Uh, one, two, three. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that I think sounds. I saw Kevin like McAlpin tweet that. He was. I thought I watched today Sunday afternoon. He was quite good in his uh, in his appearance. So maybe he's coming on a little bit. The uh, the season long ERA is not pretty, but I think he's been good lately. And Grilly, you know, Grilly blew the save today. Um, he's not been good, frankly. But that's a guy who's a prime trade candidate. Um, I disagree with the way that Freddie's kind of handled a couple of these games late. Um, but at the same time, he has at least publicly stated that he's going to use Vizcaino in the highest leverage role, which mm-hmm. is the thing that we all, all the sabermetrically inclined guys, always beg managers to do. Yeah. Um, I, I have little faith, honestly, that, that Freddie will do that. <laughs> but saying it is good. I mean, saying that he actually realizes that you know, his best reliever should pitch in the, high, in the highest leverage situation is an encouraging development from Freddie. Um, it, again, it probably doesn't matter long term because he probably won't be the manager beyond this year or even the middle of this year. But him, him at least saying that is good. Um, my stuff with Freddie, you know, I've the lineup stuff's been beaten in the ground forever. But yeah. this this week he used um, what well, he used Castro and Beckham um, in the number two hole in separate games. They're great hitters. So that's uh, <laughs> we won't do this every week, I promise. But it's just there's stuff. It's, it's there's, there's stuff beyond the bullpen management. Um, that that's probably the thing that gets him killed um, the most when the Braves have blown a few leads early, and it could kind of directly be, be tied back to the manager and some errant decision making. Um, but you know, that's he's kind of an equal opportunity offender when it comes to managing and, st- and strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure Carlos will say this in a second. Um, managers are overrated. <laughs> he keeps saying that. It's Carl. Carlos is the guy screaming that from the mountaintop. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said it so I don't have to jump on that bandbox today. Yeah, it's 
it's always going to be overblown. Freddie's mismanagement is going to be overblown. It's not going to cost the team that many wins. It's just not. Um, but that also means it also doesn't mean that he's a good manager. So it's somewhere in between. I'm not sure they're going to fire him in midseason, uh, contrary to that Bovada prop. Um, I just don't know if they see the incentive of doing that with a team that's not going to win anyway. Um, maybe you go to Eddie Perez. Maybe you go to Brian Snicker um, midseason. Yeah, but, so that, that's what I was going to ask you guys uh, next is, is there any merit to firing Freddie in his last season under contract when presumably you're not expecting to compete at all this season? Uh, do you think there's any pros or cons to be made of, of firing this guy during the middle of the season? Uh, Scott, what do you think about this? And would you, if you were in charge, do you think you would pull the plug? Obviously, I think both of you guys would say that you wouldn't have him around at this point to begin with, but is there any merit to firing him midseason, or would you rather just let him go after this season? And figure out your new manager in the offseason when you're presumably expected to be competing again. Scott, you want to take this? Yeah, I think a lot. half of the battle with the manager, too, is just the dynamics in the clubhouse, which just about all of us don't know um, how he, how Freddie commands. And, and maybe, Carlos, you could speak on this, just being in the clubhouse mm-hmm. um, some last year, but just how the level of respect that he commands and just kind of the overall atmosphere and vibe. Um, as you said, I don't really want Freddie around anymore. If they want to make it Eddie Perez, I could see why it might make some sense to to bring him on board uh, during the middle of the summer as uh, some of the young kids like Malix and, and Aaron Blair, uh, Fulty, if they do decide to bring up Swanson and Albies in September, just for him to kind of get accustomed and, and familiar with those guys. Um, but if, if they don't feel that they're going to go with an in-house candidate, should they replace Freddie, which surely they will, um, I don't really see any uh, if they if they're going to look at a Bud Black or an outside hire. Um, they I don't really see any reason to fire him. Uh, it's, again, if, uh, managers don't make that big of an impact on games, and if uh, if if you fire Freddie to just replace him temporarily with Brian Snicker for the months of August and September, I don't really see what good that would do the team either short term or long term. Mm-hmm. Brad. Yeah, I kind of agree with almost everything Scott said. You don't go into a season with Freddie and fire him after 12 games. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Like, I think me and Scott both agree. I think, Carlos, I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't, don't know how you feel about this. I'm, I would not have started the season with Freddie as the manager. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you do that, you kind of commit at least for half the season. I mean, unless you're unless you're like 10 and 40 or some like comical record like that, you can't. You can't bail on the guy after twelve. Like, what's changed in twelve games? Yeah, nothing. So if you if you thought enough to have him as your manager start the season, nothing's changed. Um, so that that'd be my main takeaway. I agree on the Eddie Perez front. I think that's a guy who a lot of the smart guys around the team have sort of whispered as a possible replacement. If you're going to do that, and the Braves might see him as a long term guy, then you want to get him in there early and get a look at him. Because what I don't want in 2017 is to start a season with a manager with no experience. Uh, and the front office has a lot riding on 2017. It doesn't mean they have to be awesome in 2017, but they have to be competitive. And I'm not sure that Copy and John Hart want to go into a season where they need to have some sort of results with a manager that they don't know anything about in a, yeah. in a real-life situation. Um, Eddie might be great. I have no idea, honestly, how he'd be as a manager. But if, if that's the route that they want to go now, which we don't know, but if that is the route, I think you want to get him in there in July or August and give him a couple months just to see if he is in over his head. Um, Snicker would be – that's the funny one. I mean that's 
all due respect to Brian, to Brian Snicker, he's not going to be the long-term manager. I can't imagine that happening. So he's your stopgap. If things just go terribly wrong, if, so, if, you know, if you start seeing some blow-ups in the clubhouse, if Freddie loses the clubhouse, so to speak, mm-hmm. then you bring in Snicker to sort of stop the bleeding and get through the rest of the season. But um, the, I think the biggest takeaway is what Scott said, is that we don't know the behind-the-scenes. If, if, the, if the players are going to play for Freddie and they like Freddie, then sure, let, just let Freddie write out, write out the season and start over again in the offseason and go from there. Yeah, so I agree with most of what you guys are saying, but my big thing with managers is that uh, there's only so much that we can quantify, quantifiably attribute to them, uh, and so much of what they do is just naturally like unquantifiable. Like You can't put a value on, on what this guy's doing behind the scenes to keep his team together and to keep them focused and playing well. So I always hate when people will kind of overblow a manager's worth, as you mentioned, Brad. And uh, in my limited time in the clubhouse, I never got the sense that any of his players disrespected him. I always felt like he got along with all these guys really well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we've ever had a situation where Freddie has lost the clubhouse uh, with this team. I don't know if that's happened since he's been here. Is that is that true? There was some chatter about it uh, last year, but it wasn't ever something that was like a clear incident. Yeah. Um, that I'm remembering at least there was some of that stuff about how maybe it was getting away from him but I don't think we've ever like read the definitive Freddie's losing the locker room yeah. piece maybe Scott can throw something out that I can't but certainly yeah, nothing like I the Nationals know. had um, but so so I don't think that there's an issue with bringing him back for this season because in my mind if you're if you're the front office and you undertake the rebuild uh, there's really no downside to having a bad manager if you think he's a bad manager um, on a year when you're rebuilding and it doesn't really matter. Like if you like Freddie and the players get along with him and his coaching staff gets along with him, I mean, why not put him around for this season? If you're intending on going a different direction in 2017, I don't see the harm in him managing the team this year, as long as he's getting along with everyone and everyone respects him, which is what I understand to be the case that might've changed at this point, but I'm not sure why it would. So I don't think that Freddie's going to be fired this season, regardless of the performance of the team. I might be proven wrong there, but I, don't, I just don't see what you would gain by getting rid of him. I feel like the easiest thing to, to do would be to let him slip away this offseason when you're trying to, trying to find the, the long-term manager of the future. But uh, I think that's all I have to say on that. Anything that you guys want to add after hearing my rambling managerial take? I think that until... You get better players on the roster. It's not really going to matter. So, um, sure, let's let Freddie have another season or so to do it. Um, and, but I think certainly the front office will start doing its due diligence as they begin their search, if they are going to indeed do one. I mean, there's nothing that says that Freddie's days are numbered. Um, but if they are going to make a hire, surely they won't wait until uh, you know October to start vetting and talking and considering different candidates. Yeah, certainly. It'll be, it'll be interesting if we uh, hear some some of the uh, the guys they're considering before the season even ends. But, Brad, what were you going to say? I said, just get me to 2017 without Freddie, please. <laughs> I don't care when it happens, but by April 1, 2017, I need another manager. I need Bud Black. I need somebody else. I, can't, I don't think I can do it one more year. <laughs> All due respect, uh, Freddie's supposed to be a great guy, but I, I just I can't do it again, I don't think. All right, fair enough. I uh, can't really argue with that. But let's move on to some of the players who have been – pretty bad this year because Freddie has gotten enough heat. So let's jump on to Eric Ibar and A.J. Pierzynski because both of them have been not hmm. good baseball players so far this season. Uh, Eric Ibar has already shown that he's 
not even close to what Anderson Simmons was defensively at shortstop. And we've heard all offseason that Ibar would give you more offensively. So far, that has not been the case. Obviously, again, two weeks, small sample size. But his OPS is just 307, which is very not good. Yes, that is an OPS. That's an OPS, <laughs> not an OBP. That is an on-base plus slugging number of 307. Yeah, he has just six hits and 48 plate appearances. Uh, at least he's not hitting at the top of the lineup anymore. Brad, do you want to jump off on Ibar? He did today. He hit second. No, please no. He hit second on Sunday. In, I jumped in the 10th inning because I was writing a paper, but he hit second today? I don't want to do the whole thing again <laughs> about the lineup, but yes, he hit second today. Well, I lied. All right. Again. Again, he hits. Right, well, what have we seen from Ibar at the plate? Do either of you guys want to comment on what you've seen from him? He looks like a very old 32-year-old uh, <laughs> who has been on a pretty generally successful Angels team his whole career, mm-hmm. um, and now he's on one of the worst teams in the league. And uh, you know, middle there's not too many middle infielders that go into their mid 30s that continue to produce. He was never that good to begin with. His numbers the last three seasons were pretty, uh, even for uh, middle infielders, I think they were slightly below average, below the league averages. So, uh, you know, Ibar, if he can stick at shortstop and isn't a complete butcher in the field, uh, you'd probably keep him there and hope that there's enough to get at least a decent prospect for him in the next couple months. But um, just not really squaring anything up, seems to roll over or, or weekly tap something somewhere um, through two weeks. It's It's been pretty brutal. I, he's surely uh, has to be one of uh, the worst infielders in baseball from a production standpoint. So, Scott, before we saw Ibar play, were you buying uh, what everyone was saying about him bringing some value offensively, or did you kind of expect to see what we've seen so far? Or is this even worse than you expected Ibar to be? Um, I didn't have a very high hopes at all. I think his OPS the last three seasons was like 680 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he's only getting older, uh, turning 32 this offseason. So I didn't think he would be this bad. I mean, he's hitting 136, 170, 136, <laughs> as you mentioned. That's you worse know, than BJ Upton. Right. Well, actually, Melvin's killing it in San Diego yeah. right now. Free Melvin. I love Melvin. I always believe. <laughs> His swing is so smooth right now. He just he almost single-handedly beat the Diamondbacks twice this, yeah. twice this weekend. To continue I going on this tangent, I, I think this I is hilarious because the whole season last year, as Melvin Upton Jr. continued to prove that he was terrible at baseball, Brad was constantly constantly behind him and now that he can't talk about him anymore he's back to his old ways of actually being a, a good baseball player and i think that's hilarious oh i yeah. spent, you I right, spent like two and a half years defending melvin <laughs> slash bj i was just thinking look he's not this bad he can't be this bad and now yeah. that he's finally out of the minds of everyone he's just suddenly on a tear and his, no one's listening his game-winning homer on Saturday night was straight away uh, center field in Petco, and I know the Diamondbacks guys were talking today that um, no one in San Diego can really remember the last time someone hit a ball that deep to center. <laughs> it, like, it was like 11.30 whenever they won, 11.30 West Coast time when they won that game. Uh, yeah, they said they couldn't remember a ball being hit that deep into that part of the park. Bossman uh, Jr. That is hilarious. Yeah, so... But either way, uh, <laughs> you know, Ibar, I, I don't think, I don't think he's quite this bad. Um, but again, a veteran playing on a not very good team, I, I can't imagine he he improves too much. Um, and hopefully, again, if he can just pick it up a little bit, the Braves can turn that into a decent prospect uh, for down the road. 
All right, and then moving on to A.J. Pierzynski, who had the uh, 300 batting average last season, miraculously, is putting up a 416 OPS, and he just has five hits and 35 plate appearances. Brad, I know we were talking about A.J. a little bit before the podcast, but what are your thoughts on him? Obviously, we didn't expect him to be the player that he was last season, but is there any hope that he can uh, continue to be a, at least a productive offensive player, or is this what we should continue to expect for the rest of the season? I mean, I think we all have to remember that A.J. Brzezinski is 39 years old. <laughs> um, and there's a reason he signed for $2 million-plus incentives this year. Yeah. There was no market for A.J. Brzezinski. I can't imagine there was, at least not a lucrative one. Um, last year has had Lucky written all over it, and anybody close to the team kind of pointed that out. It was really nice that the Braves were able to ride that. Um, but, you know, he hit 300 on the strength of his BABIP, basically. Yeah, he um, had a 310 BABIP, which was the highest mark of his career uh, since 2009. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, it was obviously unsustainable. He's not as bad as he's been this year. Um, you mentioned, I think it's like a 415 OPS or something like that for the season. Mm-hmm. He's, not, he's not that bad. But given that he's never been a good defender, at least not recently, uh, he wasn't last year, he's going to get worse on that end as he gets older. Um, he's not even, a, you know, an average backup catcher probably at the age of 39 like he's probably going to hit a little bit more than this if he continues to play every day but you know anybody expecting him to expecting him to uh repeat last year even come close was probably mis- misled in the first place and Brzezinski one of those guys just like Ibar. I mean the big t- the big takeaway here on both these guys is that they're both killing um copy's ability to trade them midseason yeah. uh, for anything of uh, anything of note like that's the that's really the bigger takeaway here is that you know this team was never going to be good this year anyway. So you wanted to at least maximize these veterans on uh, on short term contracts by trading them and getting something back. Ibar has been so brutal, and Przinsky has been you know maybe a touch better than Ibar, but mm-hmm. neither guy is going to be able to command anything right now with how they're playing. So it's almost uh, a situation where you have to let Freddie keep rolling them out there for a little while longer, so see if they can rebuild some of that value. Um, but it's it's tough. There has to be some sort of drop dead date where you kind of just give up on them. Mm-hmm. Because um, there's no investment in either guy, really, um, in terms of financially, the money spent. And uh, the problem at both positions, really, is that there's nobody ready to come up and really be productive at either spot. You're talking about Daniel Castro at shortstop, who we know cannot hit and is not a, really a part of the team long term. And at catcher, there's nobody close. So it's one of those, they, they, have, they have really no incentive to kind of bail right now. It's mm-hmm. almost. See what you can get out of these guys, and maybe sell at their highest point. Wait, wait till they have a five-game hitting streak in May, and just sell, sell, sell. Yeah. Another thing to point out for AJ uh, is that he's allowed seven stolen bases and only caught one. And I think he opened the season 0 for seven on on caught stealing attempts. He's never been a good catcher in that regard. Oh, it's um, it's brutal. That Washington game <laughs> when they were just running wild, it was like. It's that, it's that helpless feeling, man. When you know your catcher can't get anybody on the base pass, and the yep. other team knows it, they're just going first to third. Like it doesn't even matter. I mean, they were, you know, Bryce Harper's doing whatever he wants to do. It's one of those. Like, it's just help. It's a helpless feeling when your catcher can't throw anybody out, and that's where Pazinski is right now. How many bases would Malik Smith steal if he was on the other team and AJ was catching? Hmm. All of them. <laughs> that is the correct answer. All of them. Yes. <laughs> All right. Anything else to add on AJ Pazinski, Scott? I think just his struggles and, and of course, Tyler Flowers is kind of who he is. It just kind of amplifies the need to get catching talent into the system right now. 
Um, there's certainly no one really at the higher levels of Gwinnett or Mississippi that's anywhere close to being a big league guy or at least a big league starter. Um, and I have to think that sometime in the next 12 months or so, uh, Copy goes and makes a move to add somebody because um, certainly neither HGP nor Flowers are, are long-term options. Yep. I think that about sums it up for those two. But uh, moving on to another player who's underperformed uh, in the opening weeks who is probably more of a concern than either of the two guys that we've touched on just now, uh, Julio Tehran, who has a 6.35 ERA and three starts with a 5.96 FIP to back it up. Uh, his Oof. walk rate is up at 4.24 batters per nine, and his he's only striking out 7.41 per nine. Again, small sample size, but I think this is a real concern. Uh, after three starts, obviously Julio had his struggles last season before kind of improving in the last month, I believe it was, of the season. Uh, but this is a guy who you'd expect to be in the plans long term. He's a guy who in 2014 had a 2.89 ERA over 220 innings. Uh, but Given last season and given the first few starts this season, you have to wonder if maybe 2014 is the fluke year. Is it too early to ask that question, Brad, or do you think that there's some real concern here for Tehran? Uh, somewhere in the middle of those two. Um, there's definitely some room for concern and some reasonable concern. His command's been really pretty woeful early. Again, it's only three starts, but this is a guy who really cannot afford to miss um, location. Mm-hmm. Uh, his stuff is not to the point his he's not he's not forming hard enough his, his stuff is not batting enough to where he can afford a mislocation you mentioned the 4.24 walk rate he can't be successful with that walk rate it's just he can't do it he's going to be a guy who strikes out at his peak probably eight per nine mm-hmm. and uh you can't you, you got to have it's he's, he's going to be a control pitcher in order to succeed and he's basically been missing spots and when he misses spots his stuff's not good enough to uh, to avoid home runs uh, he has an 18% uh, home run home run to fly ball rate, which probably tells you he's been a little bit unlucky in that area. But some of these have been bombs, like the Bryce Harper bomb was just a bad hanging slider. Yeah, that and, slider you know, was like right on the inner lower portion, still well like over the plate. Basically, Bryce Harper's power zone. Yeah, he's gonna go. I mean, who's gonna give up home runs? That's kind of his profile. But you know it. 18.2% is fluky, but he can't miss spots. That's, that's, that's really the, the, uh, the end of result of that is that you know, he's probably never going to be, I don't know, probably. He's, he might not ever recapture that 2014 level. I think he's obviously much better than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, I thought he got you know, not unlucky, but he wasn't particularly good and still managed to post you know, a reasonable season. He was worth one war. Like that's not good. That's an end of the rotation guy, but he's not a disaster. It's not a six point three five ERA guy long term. I don't think unless there's just something broken in there, mm-hmm. and he doesn't look. He doesn't look to me like he's broken. Uh, but the command's got to improve, or it's going to be a situation where he never realizes that potential that we all thought he had. Yeah, Scott, you want to piggyback on that? Yeah, I think the one thing that sticks out with Tehran throughout his whole career, and maybe it's making excuses, or maybe it's an actual um, an actual issue, but he has always. Uh, struggled in the colder weather climates mm-hmm. um, early on, and whenever you know, I know there was a night he pitched a couple years back, maybe it was 2014 in San Francisco, where with the wind and everything, it was like 45 degrees, and he was just horrible. Um, the other, the, the real concern I have, at least, is is his fastball velocities down. Um, it's through three starts, it's below 90 miles an hour. Um, it's 89.6 miles per hour, um, which is certainly a cause for concern. If that number doesn't up a bit, then you do. Want 
wonder if, if there's something either mechanically or in terms of his health um, is wrong. Uh, but it's, again, it's early, and, if, and two of his starts have been pretty chilly weather. Uh, maybe he just needs to really get let loose, and then once the summer months roll around, he can get in a bit of a groove. Um, because, as you both kind of alluded to, the Braves are really going to need him as a long-term guy. Uh, of course, all these pitching prospects, while they put up the big numbers in the minors, uh, even if they think the saying is three out of ten, work out, you're happy. Um, you, you certainly can't count on Lucas Sims and Aaron Blair and Tukey and uh, Jenkins, and there's just so many to count, um, considering that Julio has shown over a full season or multiple full seasons that he can be a good starter. Yeah. Um, the Braves really need him uh, to, to step it up, and uh, I think in the next month or two we should really get a better idea of who he may be um, moving forward. Yeah, and if you guys are really nerdy about baseball, which presumably you are if you're listening to this podcast, uh, make sure you keep an eye on his release point uh, as we go through the season. I know last year uh, his horizontal release point especially was a, a big point of concern as it was jumping all over the place. If you look at 2015, um, it shifts dramatically uh, when you go to the, the second half of the season. And so far this year his, his release point has been around the same as he finished last season with, but just with the mechanical stuff that he's gone through over the past few seasons, uh, changing up where he stands on the mound, uh, the, that kind of stuff is interesting to me, and it'll be interesting to see if he adjusts any of that going forward, if he continues to struggle. Um, but Julio's an interesting pitcher. Obviously, he's, he's potentially the best pitcher the Braves have, probably is the best pitcher the Braves have at this point, unless any of you want, want to argue for Matt Whistler. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think it's a little too early to to count him out and to assume that he's never going to be good again. But it is starting to be a bit of concern, as Brad, you mentioned, and Scott, you said as well. well yeah, one, one quick thing on Julio. Yeah. I think people have to realize, and I mean, all of the sort of the diehards know this already, but just the more casual fans, like, Julio is not an ace. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the ace of this staff because he has to be, but like... No one, no one in the know thinks that Julio is at number one, or really even a number two. I think he's three. I think he's, I think he's, yeah, I think he's a three-four on a good team. Um, so that's just worth pointing out. I mean, he is the best pitcher on the staff, so it's one of those things where he is the quote-unquote ace. But yeah. just in a vacuum on, on a good team, two years from now, you do not want Julio Ter- Julio Tehran being your number one starter. That's not going to be a functional, you know, playoff contending team. And, and honestly, it's the same problem with Matt Whistler. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Matt Whistler just now, real quick. Like they kind of, they're not necessarily similar pitchers, but they kind of have similar ceilings, in my opinion. Like I don't mm-hmm. see Whistler even uh, as a as a. He's definitely not a one. I don't really know if he's going to be even a two. So I don't think he'll be. Yeah. Where these are two of the lower ceiling guys out of the guys who are in uh, in the system, and that doesn't mean that all of them are going to be better than Julio because they're probably not going to be. But um, him get, him getting a two point nine ERA over two hundred twenty one innings in twenty fourteen is. Really, possibly going to be his best season of all time. Um, that seems almost—I wouldn't say super likely, but more than likely. Well, that'll probably be his best season ever, and, and that's that's my opinion. And I could be wrong, but I think the percentages are kind of in favor of that being his best year ever. Yeah, I think in general in baseball we kind of overuse the word ace. Uh, there aren't thirty aces in baseball. The number one starter does not mean you're an ace. There are probably like ten aces in baseball if we're being serious scott you want do you have any comments on the ace uh discussion uh, yeah as you said, <laughs> there's there's probably 10 maybe 12 aces i mean you have your kershaws and 
uh, even your like your Ariettas over the last year or two. But anyone who had labeled Tehran as an ace, just as you mentioned, just because he takes the ball first or on opening day, uh, certainly does not qualify you as being an ace. Um, only the great ones are aces, mm-hmm. guys that are going to go out there and throw uh, 200 innings consistently of sub uh three ERA or three FIP, whatever you want to use. Um he's he's a good young pitcher, um or at least he has been in the past, but he's he's far from an ace, probably more of that of a of a three. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh all right, jumping off Julio Tehran, uh we asked you guys today with the talking chop account if you had any questions for the team. So we're gonna jump into a few of those, see if there's anything interesting to talk about, which surely there is. Um Brave Ray J asks, do you think this sweep against the Marlins may have lit a spark in this team? Uh, Real quick before I go to you guys, I think that more than anything, it's kind of um, getting that first win out of the way just gets people, uh, it it stops people from asking about getting that first win. I don't know if this is going to like lead them on to win the division or anything, but I I think it'll be able to just allow them to move on, just focus on playing the game and forget about uh, having that over. At the uh, for your record, Brad, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm I'm not crapping on the question because we like questions, but the little spark thing is such a narrative. Like, it's an easy thing to say because you go out and get a sweep in your division, but mm-hmm. um, they'll be better than they were in the first nine games. That's all I can tell you. Like, 0-9 was not a representative sample of this team, and neither is the three and against Miami. So it's one of those <laughs> things where, yeah, it's great to get a win. Uh, or a couple wins, but um, let, letting a spark could just mean that they win 67 games instead of 61. I don't know. But yeah, it's it's sort of a narrative uh, crutch sort of phrase, but I don't think that's really going to be anything uh, long-term that's going to you know propel this team anywhere. Scott? The thing I come back to is just how difficult the schedule is the first two months. I think it's uh, they have a day off and then they play the Dodgers. Then they play the Mets for three. They play four with the Red Sox, I think. Then they play uh, four in Chicago or three in Chicago against the Cubs and then three more against the Mets. Um, You're looking at at four potential playoff teams and you have to face the Mets twice. Um, So while it was certainly nice to get wins, of course, they weren't going to go some astronomical, you know, 120 losses. Um, But... Again, the schedule is so brutal. They have to play just about perfect in order to beat the good teams, and even then that might not be enough. Um, so it was nice to get some wins. I'm sure it was kind of taking a toll on the guys and some of the veterans who um, you know, were hoping to have a little better season. Um, but again, until they can kind of navigate through the, the mid, get to mid-May or so, the schedule is so difficult. Uh, there's so many good teams that they're going to face. Uh, it's going to be tough to consistently win too much whenever you're playing essentially all playoff teams for the next three weeks. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on the the schedule, Scott. We had a question from Minor WC who sarcastically asked, "Can we just play the Marlins the rest of the year?" And uh, that is certainly not the case. Um, is there anything to be said for maybe tempering your your expectations or your your feelings about the Braves' struggles during the first half of the season because of this because the schedule is so much more difficult. During that first half, as you were just laying it out, they've got Dodgers, Mets, Red Sox, Cubs, Mets. Uh, most of those teams are probably playoff teams. Is there anything to be said for maybe just tempering what they do in the first half? I think it's going to be in, to recognize the talent that you're playing against. I think last season it was almost the opposite way. The Braves played a really light first half schedule, which probably helped them a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But again, even if the Braves weren't facing all these really tough teams, it's not as if um, this team was expected to be a real playoff contender. Um, so sure, you always want to keep in mind, yeah, if they lose three, if they get swept by the Cubs, well, a lot of teams are going to get swept by the Cubs this year. If they lose three out of four to Boston, a lot of teams are going to lose three out of four to Boston. Um, mm. But um, it would certainly be nice to see them challenged against a good team. And who knows, maybe they do win a couple against the Dodgers or the Mets this week. Um, stuff like that can only help. Um, but again, kind of the, the lighting, the spark, all it takes is then, you know, a couple losses to, to lose that, um, that hypothetical spark. And you're kind of back to where you were, um, at the beginning or the, uh, you know, heading into Miami this weekend. All right. Chop Hoopla asks, how many top 100 prospects will copy get from Marcakis? Obviously this is assuming that Marcakis is traded, uh, traded given, uh, his, his success so far this season, but. What do you guys think uh, Coppola would be able to get in return for Marquecas if that's a guy that they were expecting to move? Obviously, he's an older guy, two years on his contract with some decent money attached to it. Brad, do you know what we could really expect to see in return if he was traded? Have any thoughts? It really, yeah, it really kind of depends on what he what his performance looks like when we get closer to the deadline. I can't imagine them moving off of him super early. Uh, we've kind of talked about him being a trade possibility earlier uh, in the in our podcast run. But um, he's got – it's almost – it's interesting with Barcakis in that we've kind of – at least I have kind of killed the contract because it was so long and he was mm-hmm. going to be 34 at the end of it. But at the same time, at $11 million a year, there, you know, that cost control was something of a value if the, if the team values him mm-hmm. um, because $11 million for a starting outfielder is not a big price to pay um, for an established guy. Um, so that can, it can help you in the one sense, or it can also hurt you on the other sense, and that you really want to, at least in my opinion, you want to unload this contract before it gets troublesome for a guy who probably isn't going to age super well, uh, especially defensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're looking for an American League team that can maybe hide him as a DH every once in a while, um, get, him out, get, him out of, get him out of the outfield um, with a high OBP, that kind of guy. Um, could we look at, you know, top 100 prospects is kind of funny. Like, probably <laughs> probably the answer is zero to that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, I mean, maybe may a low-end guy on that list if a team got desperate. Um, Marquecas is not a star player. Like, he's an, I think he's an average starting outfielder, which is, there's value in that. Um, but you know, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't have uh, Braves country getting their, uh, their, uh, hopes up on getting a big return a la Anderson Simmons or yeah. one of those guys where you're, you're going to be able to get a real serious return from Arcacus. You can get some value and, and I, I would definitely advocate looking at the market for him just because of the fact that, you know, he, he may not be a great fit for you. And, and the fact that he, especially not in right field, I think if he's your left fielder, um, with his defensive weaknesses, that's kind of e- easier to explain away. Mm-hmm. Um, but in right Good luck with that sort of long term, and uh, they should at least look at the market if nothing else. Yeah, so I would just say don't expect any kind of elite prospect coming back in a return for Marquegas. Some of the the top prospects that the Braves were able to get from their other trades come from the fact that they traded away young uh, young players that presumably have more value over Cost the length control of their careers. Too. Exactly. Um, so you can get maybe a, a solid guy who is maybe a, a depth. Prospect, I guess, but I wouldn't. I would be surprised if the Braves were able to get any top 100 prospects, regardless of how Marquez performs up to the trade deadline. To be honest, well, that's the argu- That's also the argument for keeping him. Yeah, like if you can't get any real value, there's something to be said for having a guy that you know is decent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you have to fill your spots. Like in the end, like we all are looking forward to 2017, 2018, but with the with the current depth in the minors um, on the position player side. 
it's going to be kind of tough for the Braves to really assemble a championship roster by the time we get to 2017-2018 in a lineup. So if you just, you know, pencil mark Hickus in as a starter and hopefully in left field and hitting like somewhere in the seven range or maybe even leading off because he has a high high IBP, like there's some value in that if you think he can mature well. It's just the end of the contract that always scared me because of his age. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, continuing the uh, conversation on prospects real quick. We're not going to dive too deep into this, considering. Uh, but Braden Felder asks, who's the top prospect the Braves should draft for the number one, number one overall pick? Uh, first of all, I think it's a little bit early to talk about this as the, uh, the board doesn't really get set until a few more months. Uh, obviously, this is going to be something we talk about as we approach the draft. But if you're interested in just keeping keeping an, uh, an eye on some of the guys who the Braves might be interested in, I'll just list a few names from the uh, the top list so far. But uh, Jason Groom and Riley Pint are two high school pitchers who are projected to be at the top of the board. Then you've got some college position players like Nick Senzel with Tennessee. Blake Rutherford is a uh, prep outfielder, I believe. Uh, Delvin Perez, another prep uh, hitter. And an interesting guy for me is Corey Ray of Louisville. Uh, other than that, just check with Baseball America for any of the top prospects if you're really interested in looking. But I don't think we have an idea yet of a specific player the Braves are going to target. Um, do either of you guys have anything to say about prospects we're looking for for the draft? I think it's, I think it's still pretty early. Yeah, um, it, it's we're still months to go, and uh, a lot a lot is going to do with the. I mean, probably tied to the Braves, the Corey Ray, who is the Louisville outfielder, mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, most notably, he is probably the most big league ready prospect. Of course, he will spend time in the minors, but um, he's probably a guy who who has a trajectory of oh maybe uh, mid to late 2018, which kind of fits into where the Braves want to be. Mm-hmm. And he's an outfielder, um, potential five tool guy, athletic, could handle center field. Uh, yeah. But again, if you're talking about the Braves, you, you probably would be silly not to at least mention uh, some of the high upside high school arms that there are, mm-hmm. especially with the Braves' this kind of um, desire to just load up on as many arms as possible and see how they shake out. I'm just looking forward to the fan base freaking out when they take an 18-year-old pitcher. <laughs> it's going to be awesome because um, uh, I think everybody's expecting the Braves to be like, all right, now it's time to take position players. Oh, if it hasn't happened already, I know that Corey Ray is going to be the, the player that people latch on to because, as you said, Scott, he plays outfield, which is a position of need. Uh, he's around the area, and he he's exploded to start this college season with Louisville. I mean, he's been one of the best players in the league, in across the country, really. He's really got five-tool talent, I think. So people are going to freak out if he isn't drafted, I would assume, unless something changes crazy. But we can we can get back to this question as we approach the draft in June. It's still early. Um, next question we have is back to Marcakis. Obviously, he's going to be a an interesting guy considering his success. But minor WC has a serious question. Will Marcakis stay at leadoff once Inciarte returns? I'd say keep him if he keeps it up. Uh, Brad, I'm going to defer to you on this since you're our lineup optimization guru. That is not true, for the record. <laughs> I'm just the one that screams about it the most, I guess. Uh, I would be good with that. I've always said Marcakis profiles is a leadoff guy in every way except for the fact that he doesn't have speed. Um, I think he's a pretty safe bet to post the highest OBP on the team. It's, it'll either be Marcakis or Freeman. And uh, given that we know for a 100% fact that Freddie Gonzalez is never going to hit Freddie Freeman anywhere but third, um, 
Sure. Marquecas leading off would be just fine with me. Um, Enciarte has got the speed, and that's why people think he's a leadoff hitter. And that's why Freddie, I'm sure, thinks he's a leadoff hitter. But uh, if you're talking about just the pure uh, guy who gets on base the most, which is kind of what you want in the leadoff spot, Marquecas looks good to me. Scott? Uh, as Brad said, he gets on base better than anyone on the team other than Freeman. Uh, and again, he's a guy who's going to put the ball in play, which, of course, Freddie likes. Um, I like him leading off, and even if that means Enciarte hits second, um, but of course you run into the lefty, lefty, lefty thing at the top. But that is the bigger question, I, Scott. Just I, I'll, I'll let you do this too. Like the problem with Marquez hitting first or second is that you don't really have that right-handed bat to put in either spot right now, especially with Oliveira not around. <laughs> that would have been the guy I argued for as the you know go go Marquez Oliveira Freeman. But right now you don't really have that right-handed bat. So like, what would you do one through three? Uh, that's I, I kind of think my my feeling is I don't care if they go left 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 at the top um, lineup optimization as long as uh, you have to have the guys in order to make that a good lineup it doesn't really matter too much how you line them up if there's no one that's a good hitter <laughs> um, so I wouldn't have an issue going left 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 if if of course Freddie wants to go left and then throw in a, a switch hitter or a righty in that second spot, but I'm really not sure who hits there. Obviously, Eric Ibar shouldn't be. Uh, Daniel Castro is an eighth hitter. Uh, Gordon Beckham is not. Uh, Adonis Garcia is not. Uh, there's really no option for Daniel. Daniel Castro is a ninth hitter. Yeah, you can't have that in the National League. But Daniel Castro is a ninth hitter. That's my thoughts. <laughs> on Daniel, on, he is Daniel Castro is probably a minor league hitter, to be honest. Oh, he's not. There's no, <laughs> problem, there's no problem about it. The guy has a career OPS under 650 in the minors. Yeah, like he can't. He can't hit. All, all respect to Daniel Castro. He's a defensive hit, player off the bench. Him hitting second is so much funnier than Eric Ibar, and you know how I feel about that already. But like <laughs> Ibar, at least at one point, could be seen as an above-average baseball player. At the plate, um, Daniel Castro is a bad minor league hitter who hit second in a major league lineup the other day. So that's that's where we are with Freddie. <laughs> we'll do this again. Sorry. I'll, no, you're I'll good. I, I like it. Uh, but maybe an, a simpler question to answer from Freeze55. What do you think the outfield will be when Inciarte comes back? For me, I think it's as simple as Marquegas, Inciarte in center, and Malik in left. Do you guys disagree there? Do you think Malik should be sent down once Inciarte comes back? Brad? It's all it all ties back to Oliveira. Like if we assume he's gone, and I kind of do um, at this point, then yeah, I think Malik's and left is the only way to play it. Um, I'm all about Malik's staying up, only if he's going to be able to play every day. Um, right now, there's nobody that you can even make an argument for playing over him right now. Um, so even when NCR Tech comes back, if you assume Oliveira's not around, you just stick Malik's and left. As long as he's playing every day, I don't really care where he plays. So yeah, give me that. Give me that Malik's and Ciarte Marquecas um, threesome. And look, at some point you might want to look at Marquecas and left and Malik's and right. Do we think Malik's has the arm for that? Uh, do we think Marquecas has anything for right field? That's I, my thing. I would argue that I'd I'd keep Marquecas just because I think his arm is pretty significantly That's, better than Malik's. But I I like where your I like where your head's at. I'm with crazy. you. Like. Ideally, it, look, Malik's not a right fielder. Mm-hmm. I think Malik's is the center fielder. We kind of all know that. But Enciarte is so good, you're not moving him. Yeah. And Mar- I, I really just want to get Marquecas to left field because that's where he should play. If we're trying to optimize the outfield, you might even you, you might even be able to do worse than Enciarte and right, Malik's in center, and Marquecas in left. That would be interesting. That's pro- Honestly, that's probably the best lineup. 
Um, but I just don't want to move in Ciarte because yeah. he's so good in center field, and center field is obviously the most important position out of the three. So give me in Ciarte where he normally is. But yeah, I think you're right in terms of like if they had to win a game today, mm-hmm. um, and that's all that ca- and that's all that mattered, which it's obviously not. Mm-hmm. That might be what I would do too. Scott, you want to chime in on this? I've kind of landed on the thought of being such a guy who solely relies on his speed to do just about everything. It's okay if you have him in the big leagues this year being 22 years old um, because his prime is probably through his 28 or 29, even 30-year season. So um, if it was a guy who, you know, more of a slugger who probably would be more valuable when he was 29 than when he was 22. Uh, but if Malik turns into the good player that most people think he will or at least the serviceable starter that some that most think he does, that he will, um, I don't have an issue keeping him up, and it certainly brings an element to the Braves that we haven't seen uh, since uh, Michael Bourne was here three or four years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm up for him and left um, NCR Tan Center, where he just about has to stay with his bat and his glove, mm-hmm. um, and Marcakis and right. And again, um, putting Marcakis and right, if if he's long term going to be with the Braves, he probably shifts to left. But if they are looking to move him by the deadline or in the off season, uh, they might as well keep him in right field to keep his value as high as possible. Yep. All right. The last question that we have tonight comes from Braves fan two twenty thirteen. Um, who do y'all think is going to be the first starter up this year that is not faulty from the minors? Um, real, I guess the short list is Aaron Blair, Tyrell Jenkins, and John Gant. If we're counting John Gant, Scott, yeah. do you have any thoughts on this? I think it'll probably be Blair. Um, Jenkins has apparently kind of gone with a brand new windup, which he's still learning about and kind of tweaking. So uh, I think Jenkins could see a midsummer, late summer promotion, but Blair has been really steady. He's not walking guys. He's doing exactly what he's done with the Diamondbacks the last couple seasons and their minor league affiliates. So um, I would think we'll see Blair here uh, probably by mid June, whenever the super two cutoff date hits, um, I would think they will replace uh, probably Williams Perez with him uh, whenever the opportunity presents itself. Brad. Yeah, Lord willing, we will see Williams Perez <laughs> not in the rotation uh, by mid June. But no, uh, yeah, Aaron Blair is the right answer. Um, I'm glad the question was sort of posed as uh, not Fulty because Fulty, I think we all agree, is going to be the first guy they look at if he's healthy and ready to go. Um, but aside from that, yeah, Blair is definitely way ahead of um, Jenkins on the uh, on the list for me. I think Jenkins. I've kind of always said this. I think he's a reliever long term. As much as that's not great um, yeah. for his. Uh, his value, I think he looks like a reliever to me. Um, and even then, like even if, you, if they want to keep him as a starter as long as they possibly can, he's not ready to pitch in the majors as a starter. He's just not. Um, so Blair, I think, I think Blair could be solid right away um, in the majors. Like he may not be great, um, but I think he's a guy that could you know come up and not embarrass himself right now. And that's kind of what you kind of look for. You don't want a guy to come up and be in, in over his head. So uh, other than Fulty, I think it's Fulty and Blair will both be in the rotation by. You know, July, and that's a good thing because they're you know those two of the better arms in the, in the organization. All right, I think that about wraps it up for us tonight. Um, we will be back with another podcast next Sunday after the Braves have swept the Dodgers and the Mets. Hmm. Um, it seems likely to me. Yeah, they're not going to lose again, right? No, one fifty-three and nine. <laughs> That would be some, some sort of record if I'm uh, channeling Kenny May. That, that might be a record. <laughs> Maybe. Either way, we'll be back next Sunday to talk more Braves baseball. In the meantime, be sure to keep checking in on the site. Uh, you can follow the site at Talking Chop on Twitter. You can follow Brad at BT Roland. 
can follow Scott at ScottColeman55, and you can follow myself at Carlos A. Colazzo. Uh, other than that, guys, take care. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Oh,